Well, good morning. Well, if you've got a student at this time, they are released. By the way, let's just give the, this is the youth group's uh, worship team again. Let's just uh, thank them for being here. Thank you, guys. And as we, uh, as we uh, have um, just a, a pretty, uh, I think, a pretty great uh, youth ministry going right, uh, right now, and uh, especially since just with some transitions and stuff, Chris has been doing a good job kind of walking through. The youth leaders have been taking care of a lot of great business and helping out the students. If you have students in junior high or high school, our Wednesday night's also available for opportunity to plug those students in with others in an outreach-oriented fashion and to continue their uh, spiritual growth on another night as well. So consider maybe ha- having your uh, teenager check that out. But in the meantime, we're here to grow spiritually as well. Good morning. It's great to see you guys, and I hope that you had an awesome Easter, and I hope that you've had a great week. We uh, began a series called Overcome on Easter, and we've been talking about fear, and we were working t- through this uh, conversation on fear. Last, last week, we examined the idea of fear of death. We looked at how the resurrection can overcome that fear of death and what it brings for us as, uh, as Christians and a hope in the future and a hope and a dream of that, uh, actually, the knowledge, the hope, the knowledge that we're going to have a resurrection in the, in the future of ourselves and this world. And so this week, though, really honestly, there are some of us that have no fear of, of, of death. It's not really something that bothers us or, or freaks us out, but there are other kinds of fears in our lives. Um, I recall for, for me growing up, uh, VCRs were a big deal right when I was pretty young. I mean, they were just out. There was the beta versus VHS war going on. And my dad had uh, picked out the VHS because the school district was used in VHS and had one really early on. And uh, he would go to the school district that had a vault of like um, Disney movies and stuff, and he would check them out. And so we watched everything from Candle Shoe and weird old, uh, old Disney movies to anybody remember Darby O'Gill and the Little People? You know, like that one. I was always fun. All the little leprechauns bouncing around, happy. I hated that thing. <laughs> it had this banshee in there, and it scared me to death. Anybody remember the banshee? Anybody else freaked out by the banshee? It was like, oh, I could not handle watching the banshee. And the one we had Disney Channel at one point when Cable was really young, and we were. I was watching. They did a whole episode on banshees, and I'm sitting there watching this shaking. And I, I run out into the kitchen, holding on to my parents. <laughs> They're like, "What's wrong?" You know, I don't know. I didn't say anything. I was just scared. You know, but fear kind of, I guess, is running in my family a little bit because my son Andrew has, has shown himself to be um, kind of scared of a bunch of interesting little things. Um, our house must be haunted or something because he, he won't. He, he, I, I'm sorry for the way this is, is going to sound, but when he goes to the bathroom, he's always scared of something. And, and so he, he goes in, and literally, there was a whole time period where he would walk out with this big jar of plants. And he'd set it out in front of the door and shut the door. And I'm like, Trust, what's he doing? Oh, he's scared of the plants. He just was freaked out by these plants sitting over the toilet. And it's just like he couldn't handle it, so he puts them outside. And that's kind of fear that's running in my, in my little kid. And I'm like, this is sad. But I was scared of banshees. He's scared of plants, whatever. But the... Uh, <laughs> My wife has some fears too, and these are probably normal fears actually for, for a lot of different people. And when I'm out of town or we're, you know, I'm up at, a, up at the cabin or whatever and, and she's home alone, she'll have all the kids sleep in the room with her because she does not like to be home alone. Anybody else here kind of have that fear of being home by yourself? And, and okay, so some of you are there. And she'll just kind of keep the kids with her 
And I'm always like, babe, it's a big house. Don't worry about it. You'll be able to go get the shotgun. Everything will be safe before that. You know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and she's like, no, 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 I don't know where they're hiding. And see, when we were in a small place, it was, they're so close. They could be in my room in a minute. You know, that kind of reality. Didn't matter if it's a big place, small place, just being home alone brings about fears and has that sense of, of ominous feeling about it. Now, all of us have different fears. There are various forms of fears, and oftentimes those fears may manifest in what could happen to me, or they could be what happens to others around us, or what could happen to our loved ones, or even our things. And honestly, in this world, there's a lot of fear growing. As you talk to people and and you start discovering how much uh, um, you know, child molestation's gone on in the world, you begin to question things. You know, like, we don't let our kids play out front anymore because, right? Because, you know, you hear about kids just being taken away and you, you hear about these stories that are out there about serial people running around doing things and you kind of get okay, I'm nervous, I'm scared about what could happen. And so we started playing only in the backyard at first. And only, you know, you're, you're making sure they're safe there. They can't go around the block until they're much older or something like that. We come into these other fears like, oh, there's ISIS. And we go, oh, that's over there until there's homegrown terrorism. And we're starting to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's school shootings and there's shootings on on uh, military bases, and there's, there's all this stuff. This, this is starting to get too close to home. Well, and then you start rotating into other fears of disease and the measles and the things like that that are rising up, and you're going like, we need new laws now to, to block these fears, and we are a fear-based society. And fears are creeping in all over the place, as we talked about last week. Fears are starting to abound in our own hearts and in our own homes, even to the place where we start fearing kind of each other in some ways, fearing odd behaviors from our neighbors and different stuff like that. We, we, we really are bound up. And I just want to let you guys know something very important here. Ready? So you're going to take a sigh of relief when I tell you this, but there is evil to fear in this life. You say, that wasn't relieving, Greg. But I, I think it's just a reality that we need to face. We don't live in a Disneyland uh, evil world. We live in a real evil world. We live in a real place with real evils that affect us all the time. And these real evils exist and, and, and they, they trouble us. Now, I think the majority of Americans, the majority of us in this room uh, agree that there is such thing as evil. You'd have to be a freshman who's taken only a philosophy 101 class at college to actually believe there's no such thing as evil. If you've ever taken a philosophy 101 class, that's funny. But if you haven't, then don't worry about it. The... Uh, the point is that evil is something that we may dismiss and excuse as cultural differences or whatever, but everybody, I think, since 9-11, with the rise of ISIS, with all this stuff going on, I don't think anybody around right now is going like, no, there's no such thing as evil. No, there is clearly evil. And evil is something that we can argue about. What, what is it? What is evil anyway? It's important that we talk about this because there's a lot of confusion in the church about what is evil. And there's this idea that, that floats out there that evil and good are opposites and they have to exist. You can't have good without evil and evil without good. That's actually an Eastern, um, like Buddhist and Hindu philosophy, not a Christian philosophy. We don't believe that evil is a thing that actually exists apart from the good. Evil, in fact, it can not exist. Good is the, it can always exist without evil. God, who is good, has existed in eternity without evil existing. He has existed and has been good that whole time. Good does not disappear when all of evil disappears. And it's important to know because what evil then is, is something else. 
It is, I believe, the best way to define it is not the deprivation of good, like somehow good can vanish. No, evil is the twisting of good. And once we understand that, we, begin to, we start to identify what this fear of evil is that exists with us. What are we afraid of when it comes to evil? It is actually taking the good and twisting it. So I may have a good intention to to do something, but I may end up with a bad result. In fact, I may actually do something evil because I think it's good. I don't think anybody who's done evil or good ever does it for for bad reasons. They do it for good reasons. You ever noted that? You do things in your own life because you got good reasons to do it. I don't think any of us have gone here, that's a really evil thing to do. I think I'll give it a shot. Even then, you'd say, at least it'd be good to try it. We always seem to want to justify it with the good. There's a good reason for this. I was trying to do this thing, and I have good reason for why I did that. In fact, murderers and those who have been uh, talked to at death row have always indicated they had good reasons in their mind for society why they did the things that they did. They didn't do it just because they thought, hey, it would be fun to do evil. Once we understand that evil is just the twisting of good, we start to realize something. That we're, we're all engaged in it. And even when we're not aware we are, that we all find ourselves involved in it. And that what evil actually is, and here's a way of identifying when evil's occurred, is that when somebody or something has lost its value or has lost functionality, it's been depraved, a deprivation occurs to a human being. So let me do, talk to you this way. You're walking along the street, and I come up and I slug you. Now, there are several things, reasons why that's evil. First of all, I've just, I've just harmed you physically. That is, I've devalued you amongst people around us. I may have actually literally caused you the, pain, the physical pain, the inability later to do something. You've lost prestige. You've lost some kind of pride. There's all kinds of things that have done wrong. Even though I may not permanently damage you in the future, it's still an evil no matter how small. A lie causes the devaluing of truth. When I lie to you, I'm trying to trick you into something, and so I'm not valuing you as somebody who can handle the truth. And so we have all these pieces that come together in a devaluing. And so when we have evil done to us, we are devalued in some way. We have lost a value. We have lost some kind of um, ability. We've lost, some, we've lost something. And so evil inherently causes loss. And we need to note this because as we do evil, that's why it feels so horrible. You feel devalued. You feel broken. You feel like it's been, something's been taken from you. When somebody steals your home, your safety's been taken you, from you. You feel violated. Evil always violates. It always destroys. And so the Bible really helps us realize that what we're fearing here is a violation of our souls, something that destroys us and tears us down, something that breaks us, that's coming from people who otherwise we wouldn't have expected because they otherwise have good intentions. And in fact, there are three major zones that our fears can then process themselves in. The Bible kind of lays it out in three different realms. As Christians, if you've been a Christian long enough, you'll know that there's really kind of three enemies in the scriptures. And then the Bible kind of dictates that there's this thing called the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these are the three locations of evil. Let's kind of unpack this for a second. On the, on the first location, the world. This idea of the world is the word cosmos. It means the world system. And even if you're not a Christian, you probably can agree with me that the world system is a pretty messed up place. I mean, stop and think about it and look at the culture. Regardless of what we've tried, what we've attempted, 
Humanity's tried kings, they've tried empires, they've tried feudal lordship, we've tried democracy, communism, socialism, you name it, and all of it has shown to be messed up. Amen? That wasn't as strong as I expected, man. You need some knocking some, some tyrants on your door or something. But the point is, all of us can find that selfishness and humanity can work its way in to use, whether it's corporation and capitalism for their own need and greed, whether it's communism and their own possession of everybody's goods and the so-called goodness of helping everybody else. All of this is always a manipulation of power and other things by people to end up destroying and harming other people. And so we see all these things and we go, is there any model? No, there's no utopia on earth. And the reason why is because it's all messed up because of this second portion, the flesh. So flesh is the individual problem, you and me. They, all of us are born into evil, regardless of our good intentions, regardless of the fact we're made in the image of God, which is supposed to reflect God. We have, do, have and do evil and we were born into it. So much so that when you, I, I hear people talk about, oh my, you know, talking about people who are going to go to hell. And they're like, my little old grandma who, who, loves, who loves me and she sits at home, she's, she's going to go to hell. That just doesn't make any sense to me. I go, but you don't remember that your little old grandma was a teenager once. I mean, I talked to my grandma about her life when she was younger. And I look at her, I'm like, you did what? <laughs> Stories that I'm amazed at. I got them on, I even got them recorded. One day I'll share them. No, I'm just kidding. The, uh. But it's like, wow, my little old grandma who's so sweet and nice. Man, she got a wicked side on her. And so do you. And so do I. It's not just my four-year-old and my, my six-year-old who, who sit around stomping, I want this now, yeah, and doing whatever they can to manipulate and lie their way through things. The point where some of my kids have even lied to let the other kid get in trouble for them. I mean, that's wickedness. That doesn't leave because you got older. It just gets more sophisticated. It turns into blue-collar crime and white-collar crime and con artists and justified actions that we all think we're just okay with. It's just culturally relevant, that's all. you got to understand. Things change. No. What we blame on the world is just our fleshly desires that are sinful. And what we're doing is we're harming ourselves. We're doing evil. We're, de- we're causing deprivation of our own values. We're causing deprivation of our own value. We're causing ourselves to be worthless and less functional because we sin. I mean, let's face it. All of us in this room struggle with self-control. Amen? You're like, I don't. I'm fully in control. Nobody's fully in control all the time. If I told you there was ham and some amazing food over in our green room right now, everyone on this team lost control. We were like, ah, it was out of control because We were like, this is good food. We're ready to go. Who hasn't lost control before? The scary thing is the fact that we know we can lose control. The scary thing is the fact that we know we can do things evil and wrong and harm people when we weren't really intending for that. And then it's even scarier when you have a desire at times to intend for it because you think it would do a better thing if you just hurt that person. The third realm is the devil. Now, I get it. He's not in vogue in a lot of locations, to be quite honest. A lot of churches have abandoned the thought of the devil. But there is a devil. There is a real personal being who is an angelic 
person. He's not this other demiurge fighting off God. We, there's not another God. The devil's limited. He's an angel who has decided that he was not going to follow God and has gone about doing evil. Now, a lot of people think that means that when something really bad happens, the church lady shows up and says, it was Satan. You know, that's not how this works. Is What you've got here is a demon who knows very humanity very well and his hordes that know humanity very well. They're not out to possess you and, and, and do all kinds of evil to you and, and make you tortured and have some kind of horror movie happen to your life. Let me give you the basic thing, the one line the devil's used the entire time that works. All he wants you and me to do is to sin. Sit. Say, what? That doesn't seem like a big deal. It is when you realize that sin is a self-inflicted wound. He doesn't, if he made you do something evil, possessed you and made you do bad things, then you aren't culpable before God. But if he can tempt you, if he can offer you an enticement, so much that you think this is a good idea, and you sin. He has just done a massive harm to you. He separated you from God. He's put you under God's wrath and you will be judged for your choice and your actions. He doesn't need to act on us. He simply needs us to make the choice to do evil. And he is very good and very wily at offering us every opportunity to do so so that we would find ourselves in a world of sin because we have become so sinful and he didn't do anything to us. He just is good at offering the opportunity. Guys, the picture that we're afraid of when it comes to evil then is good-intentioned people doing harm to us when they never, maybe they intended or did not intend to. But in all of this, whether it's somebody else, ourselves, or being tempted into it, we fear the consequence of what could be, what might be. See, fear isn't something that, that deals with the past. Oh, I'm so scared because of what just happened. When you talk like that and I talk like that, we're so scared of what just happened because of what might occur. We're afraid of the consequences. We're afraid of what might be, what could be, what the world could do to your children, what the world could do to your friends, what the world could do to your spouse, what the world could do to you, what you could do to yourself, to your spouse, to your friends, the evil that you could do, that maybe God could judge you and you couldn't go to heaven anymore, or perhaps what the devil could do or these things. These are where the fear of evil is laid. And what we need to realize is, yes, there is evil to fear in life, but the bottom line is we're afraid of what might happen. And I think the underlying question is simply this. Can we handle it when it comes? Can you and I really handle evil when it comes? Or are we going to be overwhelmed by it and destroyed by it? Are we going to be overcome by fear? I think that's what, what happens to us. We put ourselves in these situations, we play it out in our mind, and we're like, can I even survive this? And so as we begin now to journey into the Bible to see how do we deal with this kind of fear, I want to start with a well-known psalm where it teaches us that we can overcome evil by taking comfort in God's presence. We overcome this fear of evil by taking comfort in God's presence. The psalm is Psalm 23. And if you, you can look at it if you'd like, but this is oftentimes uh, read in the Bible you know, at a funeral times because it's become kind of our funeral psalm. But really it's a psalm about the Lord as a shepherd. And the only reason it goes to uh, funerals is because of this line here in verse 4. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now let's stop and think about this for a minute. Even though I walk, do dead people walk? Yes or no? No, dead people don't walk. 
and I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We're not talking about death here. In this picture, he's drawing death as a mountain that climbs up next to us. It's casting its shadow down on the valley that you're walking through. This is a picture of life, not death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, a life in which death always haunts, always hovers, always soars over us, he says this, even though I know that I will die, even though that I know I walk through this, I'm not going to fear any evil. I'm not going to fear the evil that will occur to me. I'm not going to fear the, 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 the stranger who walks down the street. I'm not going to fear the neighbor four doors down. I'm not going to fear the strange cousin who shows up every few years. You know, I'm not going to strain. I'm not going to fear the new experience. I'm not going to fear. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's talking of God as a shepherd. Shepherds would carry typically a rod and a staff. The rod was for training and directing. It was to push the sheep forward and discipline the sheep when they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And the staff was to, it had a crook so they could pull the sheep to where they needed them to go. And it was used as a, as a weapon to fight off enemies. Thieves, wolves, you named it. And so these two items are the very items of comfort because they were the protection and direction of the sheep. And what David is saying in this psalm is that God is our director and our protector. Why should we have to fear if this good God is directing and protecting our lives? If he's the one leading us down these paths, we don't have to fear whether we can handle it. He is with us. He is near us to guide us and lead us. It's, a, it, it's cute, but it's true. Um, again, I said my fourth child has a little bit of fear right now, but my wife's not sleeping good lately because my son Andrew will creep into our room late at night. Uh, I don't wake up because he always goes to her side, and uh, he's like, and he'll go, Mommy, can I sleep in your bed? And she's like, and I've taught her to say no because he kicks. So, uh, and, and he goes, now he's saying, I'm scared. Well, that's cue for get in. Because he needs the comfort and cuddle of, of his mom or his dad in order to get past his fear. What's up with that? Do you guys remember doing that as kids? Going to your parents because you fear your kids doing that for you? Why do we need this, this sudden go-to person when we're scared? Because there's something about the safety, the protection, the direction of someone bigger than you. Something about being near that brings comfort in the problem. See, God isn't going to keep us from evil. He's going to keep you through it, though. He's not going to keep you from the evil that could occur in this world. And therefore, you're like, then I can fear because it's really scary. No, but he'll keep you through it. He'll be with you in it, walk with you in it, talk with you through it. He'll guide and direct you in it. In fact, he tells us very clearly in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you've received Jesus Christ in your life, if you know that he has died for your sins, if you have the promise of eternity, the presence of his spirit is with you, God is always with you and near you in the evil that you walk through. The question is, are you drawing near to him in that time? Or are you pushing him away? What is his rod and his staff? I really believe it's his word. It is his direction and his comfort. If you want to deal with this world and all its opportunities, you need the word of God so you can have wisdom. 
and how you make right decisions and how you stand in, in the good as you stand good against evil in this world. If you want to know how to deal with your flesh and be forgiven of your guilt and your sin and know that even if you make a mistake and, and you sin again, that God's grace is there for you, you need to be in the word of God to remind yourself of the promises and everything that he's delivered to you. If you want to know what is, how to defeat the enemy and deal with this stuff, you need to be in the word, know the truths of God so his temptations aren't available to you in a way that are powerful. God will not leave us or forsake us. You will not be overwhelmed with the fear of evil when that day comes because you'll be able to stand with Christ because God is with us. He's always with us. He's always comforting us. And yet it still freaks us out. It's still gonna happen though. Evil's still gonna happen. Yes, it will. Let's just remind ourselves of that. Let's swallow the hard pill right now. Right where you're at, just remind yourself, evil will happen to me. Say that. That's not easy to say, but it's true. Evil will happen to you, and it will happen again, and happen again, and happen again in this life. How do you deal with that? I think we need to realize we don't need to fear evil during the evil. We don't need to feel like it overwhelms us. We just need to trust that God's in control. What do I mean? That's easy for you to say. Well, it was easy. Yeah, it's not. It maybe it's, I don't think it's easy for me to say. Let me tell you about somebody else who it may not have been as easy for him to say. His name is Joseph. Those of you who've been in your Bibles for years, you know which Joseph I'm talking about. But there's two Josephs in the Bible. For those of you who are kind of beginning your Bibles, maybe you've gotten to the first Joseph. And that's the one I'm talking about. The second one is the father of Jesus, um, the adopted father of Jesus. And so here we have this, um, this Joseph. He's a young man. He is the 11th child out of 12 of a family, and his brothers, older brothers, don't really like him a whole lot. He's kind of the snot-nosed little brat of the family, uh, loved overly by his father, blessed with gifts and a prestige and all this stuff, and God even blesses Joseph with dreams, so much so that Joseph runs up to his brothers and tells them the dreams. You guys are all going to bow down in front of me one day. Hey, isn't that great? And all the brothers are like, you want to know it's great, the fact that I'm bigger than you, you know, that kind of reality. One day he's out, supposed to spy on his brothers for his dad and finds his brothers out in Dothan and they look at him as he's coming. They go, is that a little dreamer? I'm sick of that kid. You know what? He gets all the attention. He's, we're done with him. Why don't we kill him? That was the idea of the brothers. We think that would be a good idea. I don't deal with all our problems. They take him, they grab him, they throw him in a pit. One of the brothers stalls them long enough and goes off into town to do his, his business and comes back. And uh, there is Joseph in the pit. As he's coming back, they, they, he doesn't see this, but up comes these slave traders and they sell him into slavery. Now here's Joseph. He thinks life is great. Things are good. I'm loved by my dad. God's given me dreams. I'm now in a pit. Evil will happen to you. And he's thinking, okay, okay, my brother's gonna save me out of here. It's gonna be okay. Lift it out when his brother goes for a random journey into a, into a village, pulls him out and sold into slavery into Egypt by his own brothers. This is horrible. Bad things are happening. How much worse could it get from the pit into slavery? And slavery works in his home, rises up the ranks. Good things are happening. He starts finding himself in a better position. It wasn't really bad if you were the house slave of a prestigious person. That's exactly what he became, and he became the top one until the wife accused him of something he didn't do. Everything's great. He should not have anything to fear. And then he's thrown into the pit of jail. 
And those aren't nice jails. These are like dark, dank pits with some bars over it and some guards. And maybe you're throwing some food once in a while while you're trying to deal with the wet rats and everything else that are running around near you. And so you've got this man now in the pit. He has plenty of stuff to fear, plenty of problems. He rises up the ranks. So he's um, almost in control of the jail in a sense. Meeting people that have been thrown in by the very king, Pharaoh himself, giving them advice and, hey, remember me when one of them, when his dream, interpretation of a dream comes true and is left in there for two more years. Could get any worse until he's drug out, brought before Pharaoh, told to interpret a dream, which is not the safest place to be when you say you can interpret a dream and a king tells you to do so. And then he has to tell this king, by the way, Mr. Pharaoh, you think you're God? You're not. The real God's telling you what's going to happen. Try insulting a king sometime in his face in his own throne room before all of his people and, and, and because God told you to, and we'll see what fear looks like. He had plenty to fear, even though he rose up the ranks to the point where suddenly he was in charge. He interpreted the dream. He was in charge of all of this, all of the famine relief and everything that was going on at the time because he got in charge of that. Shouldn't he be expecting the bottom to fall out again? Here's a guy who every time he rose up ranks, the bottom fell out, rose up, bottom fell out, rose up, bottom fell out. Now you want to talk about a guy who shouldn't be able to say, hey, I trust that God's in control. When he rises up to the top, his brothers show up in town wanting food, and eventually he works it out to where his brothers stay in town, brings their dad into, into Egypt, and now dad dies. Now the brothers are sitting here thinking, they're scared of evil. What in the world's going to happen to us? Joseph's got all the power. He's going to get ven- revenge on us. We better be careful. So they make up a lie to tell his brother, hey, dad said you can't touch us. Then he died. Joseph in this interchange suddenly says this, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. How do you say that at the end of your life? How do you say that after, after all of this evil has occurred to him? Wouldn't you just be scared what's next? Shouldn't he have PTSD? Shouldn't he just be messed up? He sits back and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about as many people should be kept alive as they are today. Yeah, humanity, you all intend evil. The world intends evil. The flesh, our own selves intends evil. The devil intends evil. But notice who's not in that? God. God doesn't intend evil for us. And when you're in the middle of this evil, in your middle of this struggle, can you see the God may still be in control. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not even saying that's always possible to see it. But I want you to know something. If you trusted Jesus Christ, he indeed has and will take you through that evil. He is in control of it. The reason I know this is because the most evil event that ever occurred in history was endured by Jesus. When humanity rose up against the creator, and crucified their creator on a cross. God flipped it to be the redemption of all those people who would be against him. Hebrews puts it this way, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? Why? so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
If you're fearful of evil, if you're fearful of what could be coming, consider him who endured. Consider what he was brought through in his life. It went from crucifixion and death to resurrection and exaltation. That God will not leave you if he is with you. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon you. In fact, he is using even the worst case scenario of your life to the good. That God is that well planned out. None of the evil that's occurred to you has been a surprise. In fact, he's like the ultimate man. He's the the ultimate, this is the most inventive person I could ever imagine. He's walking along on the road one day and he looks down at what we all try to dodge, which are the road hockey, the road hockey pucks that are sitting there in Norco. You know what I'm talking about? Stuff right there in the middle of the trail. Horse has been here, you know. Everybody else throughout the centuries has kind of walked around that stuff. Swept to the side. This guy goes, I'm going to collect it and sell it to you guys to put on your lawns. And now we go, I'll buy that for a dollar. And we take that and we throw it down and and our grass gets green and we go, yes, this stuff's awesome. Why didn't I think to collect poop? (laughs) Yes, the pastor just said that. The point is that here is this man who saw where everybody else saw something nasty, raunchy and horrible to get around and move it out of the way and get it away from me. He's going, that could be used for good. God does that with all of our evil. Every single part of it, he goes, I can use that. I can use that. I can use that. And we'll talk even more about how God uses pain next week in that way. But he uses all this stuff. And what we have to do is just stop trying to be the ones who think we got control in our hand and use the joystick and move us around. Because guess what? We're the ones in the flesh. We're the sinners. We're the evil ones. We're the ones stuck in the system. We're the ones tempted by the the devil. He's the one who's good, untempted by any of this stuff, able to control it all and work it all and use it all. And I'm telling you, there's some really rough stuff that many of you have gone through. And it's far beyond just this. There's other pieces you need to add in and talk through because you've been devalued and been destroyed in places that you need to rebuild. But it begins by trusting that God could and indeed use these things to the good. He could indeed use your sinfulness as a testimony to transform other lives. He could indeed use this world system to bring the gospel all over the world and billions of people might be saved. He could indeed use even Satan's ploys and schemes to take his son to the cross to bear our sins so that we could be saved. There's nothing in this trinity of evil that God couldn't flip. He's that good at it. Are we willing to trust him? Don't let evil overcome you, but overcome evil with good. You have the opportunity not to let it crush you. Now you have the opportunity to not be a part of the evil, but to act in it, to be with God in his word, bringing your anxieties and prayer before him so that he could use you, transform you, and work with you to do good like a testimony, to do good in acting in our world to bring about good, to do good in the resistance of evil. My friends, this isn't passive inactivity. Oh, I've just got to sit back and be with God. No, this is let him be with you and guide you to do the good. And I can't unpack all that. That would take the rest of the Bible. But we need to be people who don't simply let fear destroy us. But we need to become confident through that, um, though evil comes, for Jesus has defeated evil. We can be comforted that he's present with us, We can trust that he's in control and we can be confident that evil has been destroyed. In John 16, 33, before he goes to the cross, Jesus said this, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
In the world, you will have tribulation. That's trials. That's horrible, bad things happen to you. But take heart. I've overcome the world. In this world, you will have persecution. In this world, you will have children who die young. In this world, you will have parents who die young. In this world, you will have horrible things happen to you financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Yes, evil will happen. But take heart, he says. I've overcome the world. All of this system and all this mess and all this stuff that we've created that propagates sin one day will be dismantled. One day will be overruled. And in the resurrection, when there is no more sin and when there is no more evil, all of that governmental tyranny will be gone. All that corporate greed will be erased. All of that horrible situations of personal political problems will be finalized and dealt with. Because sin will be done. There will be no more death, no more sin, no more world system. Your flesh, you will be resurrected from the dead. You won't sin again. You'll do whatever you want. And you will enjoy God fully and perfectly. And sin will never enter into your mind or consciousness. And that old devil, he's going to be suffering in hell. Where he belongs. Because God has overcome the world. He's overcome the flesh. Notice Colossians. You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How many? Does that mean the ones you're going to commit still? Yes. Your sum total of your life's sins have been subsumed, brought to the cross. And he says this, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. The sole sum of your sins, the sole sum of the harms we've caused others and the harm we've caused God has been summed up and dealt with on the cross. God will judge the world for their sins. God will deal with us for ours, either at the cross or at judgment, and he will deal with the devil finally. Notice what he did. Last line, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What can the devil do but tempt you? And he tempted Jesus and tempted him and he never could get him to sin. So what did he do? He turned to his final weapon, death. And Jesus swallowed that up and spit it out as he rose from the dead. He said, what else have you got? Those of us who stand in Christ, yes, he can tempt you. Oh, he could even slay you, but he's just giving you the very thing he doesn't want you to have, which is God. He wants to keep you from him. But you've been forgiven. You've been set free. You will be resurrected. You will have God in your life. And he can't do a darn thing about it. The evils that we fear have been dealt with in the cross and the resurrection. And therefore, we can be confident to go do good, to stand firm in a world of evil, knowing that our God is with us. He is solely in control. And every evil that occurs, he will deal with and has defeated already. It's like D-Day. When D-Day happened, the war was over. All we had to get was in there. And when that victory day came, yes, we were still fighting over in Japan, but the war was done. Just a mop-up project here and there as we continued forward and then settled. The war's over. Yeah, there's still stuff that we have to deal with. But Christ is one. The victory is his. Let's not fear. For our God is with us. Let's stand like like they did in Israel. I love this verse in Zephaniah. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Why should we get together and sing? Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Does it sound like the church? Say amen. He has cleared away your enemies. Gone. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. It is no wonder with the church historic, we should scream and cry, Maranatha, Lord, come soon. Because when he comes, there's no more to fear. It's like I look at my daughter when she tells me all those things, all that fears that are built up in her life as she goes to school and stuff. I say, babe, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? They could yell at me. Well, what's worse than that? They could hurt me. What's worse than that? They could kill me. I say, babe, what happens if they kill you? I go to heaven. What happens if they yell at you? I love you. God loves me. What happens if they insult you? You'll still have your family. I never stop loving you. Your mom will never stop loving you. We're always here for you. If, we, if this is the, the very thing that saves my daughter from her fear, isn't it what God has given to us? Fear not, for the Lord your God is with you. He is with you wherever you go. Would you bow your heads with me? This morning you may be in an inordinate amount of fear. And right where you're at right now, I just uh, I ask that God would be present with you to guide you through that fear, to be near you. And where you're at in your seats, if you are overwhelmed with fear today about evil and the things of this world, I just ask you to take these, this time and speak to him. Invite him into your life. Draw near to him. Lay your anxieties at his feet. And let him minister to you. But if you're here today and you don't have an answer for what the ultimate evil of your own life called sin, you don't have an answer how you deal with that and how you deal with the judgment that God's going to bring, I want to give you his solution. God loves you too much. He's been waiting. And he does not want you to be judged. And so he's sent his son Jesus to bear your sins on the cross to rise from the dead, to give you a new chance on life so that you could be forgiven, not fear the judgment, and have life with him forever. But there, there's a decision that has to be made by you. The decision has to be made whether you are willing to receive that gift from God or not. You see, you don't work and earn forgiveness of sins from God. He's not up there just throwing it out either. It took a great cost of his son on the cross and he was asking you, will you receive that? Will you let Jesus bear your judgment? I hope that you would make the decision to let him do that. I hope that you would allow God to love you in that way. But it's your choice. If you feel like you can, you can do this, you can stand before God and you'd be fine on your own, then you, you know your choice. But if you know that if you stood before God, you would be judged for your sin. And you don't have any other way but to receive Jesus to be forgiven. I want to invite you to do that. And if that's where you're at right now, just let me know so I know who I'm talking to. Just by putting your hand up, you're saying, yeah, that's me. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need to receive that gift from God. And right where you're at in your seat, if that's where you're at and you're, you're ready to receive that, just talk to God. Begin by laying out those sins that you know you've done, that you know you'd be judged for.
Now I want you in your mind's eye to imagine that you're turning away from your sins. You're turning to God. You're asking him to forgive you. This move is called repentance. Ask God to be your king, your Lord, to lead you. Ask him to take your sins and place them on the cross with Jesus. Ask him to give you new life. And then ask him to come into your life and lead you from here. And God, I lift up those who may be praying these, this prayer to you. I ask that you'd reveal that forgiveness of sins to them this week, that they would know your presence. God, for those who are in fear today, I just ask that you would indeed allow your presence to be so near them that you'd strengthen them, allow them to trust your control and see that you've defeated these things. Help them move past their fear to standing in faith with you. And for the rest of us, God, we ask that you would indeed lead us to do the good in this world and to be witnesses of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.